1: This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 260. We're recording on Thursday, May 10th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com.
0: I've got a correction to make.
1: Oh, already?
0: About what? The busman's holiday. Oh. I was using it incorrectly. A couple people emailed, tweeted, carrier pigeoned, um, rode in on their pedantic courses. Actually, I thank you for this. I, it's one I could have looked up a long time ago, that I, but I kind of didn't want to. So a busman's holiday actually means where you do the thing on your vacation that you do for work. So a busman's oh. holiday is he drives a bus, but on his vacation, he takes a long bus ride. Something like that. I see. Which makes the Busman's NBA a very sort of naughty, self referential rip in the space time continuum um, kind of a reference. So it really should be more like a DIY NBA. A I DIY NBA. I like the Busman's NBA. I like my version of it. I don't know what else to say. But for those of you who wrote in, I do appreciate you correcting me. On the other hand, I am sad that I was wrong.
1: I'm surprised that it, we made it this long referring to the Busman's NBA without learning this.
0: Well, I think there's a way in which if you were generously reading me, it kind of makes sense cuz like I'm reading about business stuff in my leisure time, which is kind That's of the re- it's kind mm-hmm. of the reverse thing. I don't know where I am. I'm going to continue <laughs> mistakenly referring to it as the busman's NBA. <laughs> busman's NBA. Look we have we know, a brand. As we're we know, as we know from annotated it. <laughs> language is descriptive, not proscriptive, uh, <laughs> oh. irregardless of all of you.
1: <laughs> if we call it this, For long enough.
0: Yes. Literally, I will say this until the heat death of the sun, irregardless of your complaints. Probably there are people out there breaking out in hives. I'm just pressing all the the, the people's buttons about this. Um, If you you don't even know, I didn't even put an apostrophe on that it's.
1: I'm yeah, just relieved that this wasn't like a surprise correction of something I was doing that you weren't yeah. going to tell me till we surprise. got on air. I was like, um, "What are we my correcting?" My name this whole
0: time is actually George. You've been mispronouncing <laughs> it for six George years. George O'Neill. George, good old George. He probably would have gotten the Busman's NBA right that, that
1: George year. sounds like a, a guy who knows what Busman's NBA is. Is there an, so no, like
0: George? It's like. There's 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 not a declension of George. Like if you're it's Georgie, that's your best choice. If you're George, there's no short for Gregory, I, I guess.
1: I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you, what's your nickname if you're George? George? I mean, it's only like it's already just one syllable. It's hard to shorten.
0: And George is not short for Gregory, which I swear for a <laughs> long time I thought was true. It kind
1: of makes sense <laughs> though, right? Well, no.
0: Well, come on. Liz <laughs> is short for Li- Elizabeth. Give me a yes, break.
1: Yes. Liz is contained within the word Elizabeth. I don't I
0: think that's Ellie? No, I don't think that's right. <laughs> Gregory, all the letters of George are there. They're no. just in the wrong order.
1: <laughs> Let's do our first sponsor. All right. Cuz I don't the, even know tell me the I don't know what sponsor. to do except save you from yourself yeah, now. Right. The first sponsor is The 49th Mystic by Ted Decker. This is book number 1 in the Beyond the Circle series. Some say the great mystery of how one can live in two worlds at once died with Thomas Hunter many years ago. Still others that the gateway to that greater reality was and is only the stuff of dreams but they're all wrong. In the small town of Eden, Utah, a blind girl named Rochelle Matthews is about to find out just how wrong. And so begins a two-volume saga of high stakes and a mind-bending quest to find an ancient path that will save humanity. The clock is ticking, the end rushes forward. Ready, set, dream. Mm. Ted Decker is a New York Times best-selling author. He's returning readers to the world of his most popular series and his passion is simple, to explore truth through mind-bending stories that invite readers to see the world through a different lens. Rochelle Matthews must unlock the five seals of truth to save our world from darkness. So, that is The 49th Mystic by Ted Decker. You can check it out wherever books are sold, or we'll have a link to it in the show notes.
0: Um, To Kill a Mockingbird Trial performance play within a play updates. They should call this the, the mousetrap, this whole thing. <laughs> um, but a the, as you know, dueling lawsuits, not dueling, parallel lawsuits, In that one in Alabama, another in New York, about the Harper Lee's estate's, I don't know, protest, uh, objection. claim, objection, that Aaron Sorkin's version of To Kill a Mockingbird is not in the spirit of the original work and therefore should stop. And then Scott Rudin, the producer of that play, countersued, saying, you're screwing up my biz. Um, get out. And the, the news this week is there, the trial will happen in New York soon, before June 4th, and it is admissible to reproduce the Sorkin's version of the play, but it will be filmed and then played in the jury room.
1: Oh, that's so, not nearly as exciting as perform it in the trial.
0: N- no, no, but I do like. I feel like they're going to wheel out one of those ancient cathode ray yes! tubes, like in yep. grade school, mm-hmm. with a VCR. They have to get mm-hmm. it in there. I'm guessing the appellate courts. Um, audio-visual setup is about as advanced as my seventh grade <laughs> biology classroom was. I believe was. this. Mm-hmm. There's a slide projector. People don't even know what's... Uh, oh, there's one overhead of those projectors. overhead
1: projector with the erasable markers.
0: In hindsight, what a hacky technology. What we're going to do is get a giant lamp and see-through <laughs> paper. And that's what's... Gonna, this, is, this is all totally going to work. And yet it did. Like, it was kind of amazing. For
1: years.
0: For years, for years. Yeah, I learned how to do long division on blurry, red, Same. Sharpie... Uh,
1: Man, uh, this is a blast from the past.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so that that's what's going to go here. Um, basically, this the, both both trials will happen at the same time. Um, pre-trial motions directed evidence before a two-week trial that's now scheduled to begin June fourth, which coincides. Melissa, um, one of our listeners pointed out, or no, M- Maria Christina pointed out that June fourth is when the Tony Awards are. So that's an interesting uh, synchronicity there. I guess we'll find out. Do you, you, we? We? I want. The Sorkin Rudenkamp to win. I'm pulling. I'm pulling hard for that. I am too. Um, so there's there you go. Any other, any other tidbits from this to follow up on?
1: No. I hope we get to see this. Like, I want to see the thing they film that they show to the jury.
0: <laughs> I, I don't see why not. Maybe they'll use it for like ad spots or something. You know, make a YouTube trailer out of it.
1: You're going to get such good publicity, like if they win, if Sirkin and Rudin win this, and then you can do like commercials for the yes. *To Kill a Mockingbird* yes, right. adaptation that's already gone to trial.
0: Yeah, you know, I see st- they have they're using old stills from the movie, and the the piece will mm-hmm. link to it. It's like you see Gregory Peck's like, boy, I'm really mad that I never got Gregory Peck as old Superman. Doesn't he look? He'd be an awesome he Superman. Does. He looks like Clark Kent wearing um, wearing uh, uh, Tom Wolf's clothes in this <laughs> picture, but I really want to see this. <laughs> Anyway. He's like,
1: he's this well, photo that they've selected to. he's making such a like, he's over it all kind of face. Yeah. That it's like, I yeah. feel you, Gregory Peck. This whole thing is silly.
0: I could take you all out with my laser eyes right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. That's fun follow-up, I think. Mm-hmm. We have some more unfun follow-up from the world of Me Too and yeah. publishing. Um, I have to say... This one has been really tough because the Juno Diaz news broke right before we recorded last week. And we knew going into that recording, like we record on Thursdays, the show goes out on Monday. A lot was going to happen between the time we finished and the time the show went out. And that's tough when a story is developing like this. This was one of the only times that like, I have listened back to the show and been like, oh, I kind of want to do just like an addendum to it. Yeah, which um, is
0: what? Well, I mean, what would your is, addendum be?
1: Well, I mean, just he released a statement. So the full story of like what happened and how these allegations came out was put up on BuzzFeed and then I believe in the Washington Post, basically right after we recorded, like at the time we recorded, Zinzi Clemens had tweeted, Zenzi Clemens and Carmen Maria Machado had tweet, had tweeted about, tweeted is a new thing when you're a queen <laughs> who tweets. Um, they had tweeted about allegations against him and experiences that they had had with him. And it later came out that Zinzi Clemens stood up at the Sydney writers festival and asked Juno Diaz directly to his face first. Like you did this to me and how come you didn't address that in your New Yorker piece. And then mm. she followed up by tweeting um, her asking the question was followed by some man being like, isn't it so rude of this lady to be interrupting your speech? Mm. Um, and then D- right, right. And but like, of course, that's what happened. And then uh, Diaz released a statement through his agent where he says, "I take responsibility from for my past. That is the reason I made the decision to tell the truth of my rape, and it's damaging aftermath. This conversation is important and must continue. I'm listening to and learning from women's stories in this essential and overdue cultural movement. We must continue to teach all men about consent and boundaries. Notably, nowhere in that statement does he say the words, "I'm sorry." Mm. uh and there have been a lot of pieces about this very few of the acknowledgements of wrongdoing that we've seen so far in me too have actually contained apologies um which is upsetting for a variety of reasons um but i think diaz in particular this is really ringing bells and there's a great piece by um aya de leon i'll have to find the link mm-hmm. uh, to I put it into the too. show notes um, but essentially about Restorative justice, and that uh, Diaz hits very hard because his work, though it did, I think we talked last week about like it has contained elements of misogyny, but he's also examined misogyny in his work, and he's looked at toxic masculinity. And this piece in the New Yorker also looked at tos- toxic masculinity and the results of trauma, and that men need to participate in the dismantling of this. So, not only do I find Diaz's statement to be inadequate because it lacks, and I'm sorry but this like this conversation is important and i'm going to listen and learn like that's insufficient if you actually want the cultural movement to continue and you want the culture to change and to teach men about consent and boundaries men have to step up and have that conversation as well and men who have been like, I think that this is the first step on the road to redemption is men who have been abusers or assaulters acknowledge, apologize, and can become involved in trying to take apart the cultural structures that have made it possible for them to commit these wrongs in the first place. So he released that statement, and I was like, man, I was I was so hopeful when we recorded last week yeah. um, and... And here we are Um, in other like bits of Diaz follow up. The Pulitzer Mm -hmm. uh, governing committee says that they have committee board. The Pulitzer Prizes have spoken with him and he remains a a board member, which I think is a bad job on the part of the Pulitzers. That's kind of all I have to say about that.
0: Yeah, I mean. This is not by way i 'm just wondering aloud about the non apology stuff i don 't know enough about the law. You mm. remember that episode of Parks and Rec where Andy falls in the hole and they get the lawyer and they 're like yeah. don't say don't say incident don 't say i 'm sorry like I wish he would I, that, that seems right. a necessary I, piece i do I do wonder if there's like a again i 'm not saying it 's right mm. in terms of motivation of why it comes out like this that we haven 't seen one like this I mean if you say i 'm sorry for assaulting you. That can be used against you in court. I mean, I don't know. I I hear you. Like, I have wondered
1: the same thing, but how is I take responsibility not also an admission of Well, because
0: it's responsibility for what? It's like it's not specific, right? Like, it's not referring to anything specific. Like, if he had said, I'm sorry to Zinzi for assaulting you, that's admissible in a civil suit and a criminal suit, which maybe it should be. I'm not saying it isn't, but I think— there's another piece of this insult with this it's all screwed up and the legal well, stuff that's that's I'm just wondering aloud
1: about yeah things. which also does raise the question like I, I understand why if, like, if there's a legal thing for that I understand yeah. I don't like it but I understand why these statements might be coming out mm-hmm. this way but it raises the question of when we're going to start seeing legal action taking or taken around this right. stuff like um, seeing some legal action taken around. You know who's going to come forward and take legal action against you know Diaz or against sherman mm-hmm. alexi or um or is are these public statements and sort of the cultural shift is that the goal and not getting you know personal retribution yeah um,
0: on the yeah, other again i'm end- not trying I'm not trying to say I totally yeah. understand it and it's fine'm just like there's I'm sure there, there's a lot of other things going on in terms of dealing with it. Some of it might be self-preservation. Some of it might be denial. Some of it might be a lawyer saying, if you say this, you're going to jail, which I just don't know. I know enough about it.
1: Yeah. Um, on the other side of things, it was tweeted this morning that Juno Diaz had a story that's going to be removed from a short fiction anthology called Everyday People that is coming out from Atria Books, with, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. Uh, the story is going to be replaced with a list of suggested work by women, non-binary, and trans writers of color. Um, and that's uh, this is from a tweet by Jen Baker, who is a writer and editor, um, one of the hosts of The Minorities, and publishing, podcast, and she's the editor of the Everyday People anthology. Mm-hmm. So, um, presumably, she got to make that call about removing his work um, from that anthology. And I think this is also this is action that should be should be taken. So
0: related came up in the book rights insider Slack. I think it was Kristen Coates that brought it up first about blurbs, which is something yeah. you and I hadn't thought about. Which no, I thought was a that, fascinating.
1: That just comment. came up. Like, what do you do? What's going to happen to books with Juno Diaz blurbs on them or Sherman Alexie blurbs? And I hadn't thought about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, clearly the ones in print, like, I don't think they're going to send someone out with a bunch of scissors or whatever, but no. it does, it's these paperbacks that have been out forever, right? You know, or that, you know, hundreds of thousands of the paperback favorites that get is at the front table of Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. We got some nice feedback from people saying, oh my God, I didn't know. The, every time, I think we, you've talked about those tables multiple times on the yeah, show, mm-hmm. but we have different people, people join. People are leave. surprised every time. They're, I, there's a new person every day that hasn't seen the Flintstones. Kind of one of those situations, but like, uh, we get those all the time. But like, there are there are covers out there of books that will sell for years in paperback mm-hmm. that have blurbs from folks that we're talking about. And oh
1: well, yeah.
0: I I guess I, I don't actually know how nominal it would be to to, to have the next ten thousand get switched out. I mean, I don't know what cost it would be. It would seem worth bearing but that's another just piece of the spider web of influence and enmeshment Mm -hmm. that authors of this profile have and continue to have. And how you deal with that is going to be, there's a lot of, a lot of cascading decisions to be made. Mm.
1: If you're a little birdie who might know some things about this, we would love to hear it podcast at bookriot.com and we can keep your identity secret for you. Um, But I, I'm really curious about that. I, I hope that if a writer, contacted their publisher and said, you know, I want to take Alexi or Diaz or whoever's blurb off the next run of my book. I hope that a publisher would respect that request. It would be great to see publishers do it proactively like, yeah. Oh, we've, we've got a Diaz blurb on this title. We better find something else. Um, uh, a lot but of that feedback was just, That's like oh, one sorry. of those sort of, that was just one of those like spider legs of this thing that I hadn't even, that hadn't occurred to me yet.
0: Some interesting feedback too about the morality clause discussion we had. Um, mm, a couple of mm-hmm. people tweeting at me and emailing about like, could see it both ways. Um, you know, I, on the, on the, the side that people are worried about putting them in there saying, saying they could be abused and I guess I would just reiterate that anything can be abused. What's being abused right now is that they aren't there, right? The lack of them is sort of being abused. Um, at least this could be abused by both parties. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense, but it makes sense to me that there is some mechanism that could be instituted for a publisher to say, you know what, we're out. And if you don't want to sign that agreement, I guess don't sign it. It does take away some of the freedom I guess, of an author, but, an, but it takes away sort of gross freedom. I, I don't know. I, I guess that's how I feel about it. It's like, just don't do the things. Like, I don't think, if a publisher, again, we've seen how outcry about books works. If a publisher does this bad and it gets out, they're going to pay the price. Right. So I feel like it will be incumbent upon those of us who follow books in the book world to see if there are cases where it's abused and call them out. But that it could be abused, I don't think is any reason to keep it out.
1: It's still and I think it's worth mentioning, it's still a pain in the butt to enforce one yes, of those. Right. Like, the legal fees alone, Lord. Right. Like enforcing a morality clause, having a morality clause in the first place makes it easier to break mm-hmm. a contract, but breaking a contract is still a pain. And people will object and there will be lawyers involved and like it's it's not fun. And yeah. there I can't think of an industry in wh- that has morality clauses on the regular, in which I've heard a story about a morality clause being abused. That's not to say that they never are, but like the NFL mm. has morality clauses, and we all know that there are NFL players walking around that like should be in jail for some yes, of the things that's that they true. do. Um, but not only that, that like their act, their actions or their alleged actions ha- are undoubtedly mm-hmm. in violation of morality clauses when you're talking about domestic violence and that does not stop the teams from continuing to keep those people on. Like they they could get rid of them because of morality clauses and they don't presumably because of economics and the legal headache. But it, it's, a- I, it's it, I mean, the slippery slope is rarely a winning argument right? is kind of with the bottom line there.
0: It, it, it's going to be a cases where the pain of not enforcing the clause is so great that the pain of enforcing it is slightly less. Right, right? It's like, like
1: we are right. We're willing to take on the headache of getting rid of this contract, like
0: the he who shall not be named lawsuit probably still cost the publisher tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they're doing the PR, other kinds of math, saying okay, we have to eat that cost of getting rid of this because otherwise it's too painful. So I think in the cases it would be invoked and and won. It's much more likely that it will way surpass any kind of smell test you or I might mm-hmm, attribute to right. it, just because it'll be so beyond the pale of winnable. Um, because otherwise, if it's a borderline case, they're not going to—they're not going to try it because the author is going to sue. They're going to—they're going to file a grievance, and especially for you know a three thousand dollar advance <laughs> that they owe some. They're just, I mean, it, it, I think it's going to be reserved for situations like for the Diaz. I don't even know if Diaz had a morality clause would be invoked right now. Like, I'm still not sure they would, because just because of the co- – I have no idea. I'd be mm. curious to know. Um, the Alexi one, like
1: – Right, because the – I guess, like, the alternative is publish the book and just don't market it. Like, get yes, through. You right. know, treat it like it's not by a best-selling author. Because all, um, the,
0: all the publisher really owes them is the advance and any royalties on sales. I may, Maybe there are contracts in which there's, like, a, a – a, a ex- explicitly stated, like, marketing spend or publicity mm-hmm. plan. But other than that, like, they don't owe you... I think most of the time the, the publisher doesn't owe you anything except we are publishing the book and we're cutting you a check for this advance and this royalty scheme for sales. Other than that, I think you're on your own. And we hear this sometimes from authors saying, there is no marketing plan for my book. I think that's up to the publisher. I think that's part of the table stakes yeah. uh, of one of these things. So now, at some point, you're as Hugh Shall Not Be Named's book coming out with your name on it and just what it would... Re- That alone is worth something to get rid of. But again, I feel like that slope isn't that slippery. Like there are spikes on that slope that will keep it from rolling all the way down the hill.
1: This is, I mean, we're already kind of inside baseball here, but I think the Diaz question is really like extra interesting because he's published by Riverhead, which makes its name on publishing like title, like one of their core values of the Riverhead imprint is publishing titles by. Diverse, like a diverse group of people, mm. and um, writers of many races. They publish a lot of women. They publish a lot of um, women's stories and sort of politically focused fiction, or pro- like politically progressive fiction that would kind of falls in that um, under that umbrella. And so it's really interesting to think about, like, are they g- receiving pressure from other Riverhead authors of, you know, I don't want to be associated with this imprint. Um, like I can imagine it happening. I don't know, but it would be interesting to hear if that's going on. Um, particularly because of what imprint or what Riverhead stands for.
0: Are you going to re-sign with Riverhead? Like, you know, there's ways leverage, Mm -hmm. authors have levers. Like if you're, you know, they do a lot of really good commercial slash, commercial slash literary fiction on both sides, sometimes on the border. Um, a lot of really interesting progressive women's stories have come out of that book. I mean, a really interesting imprint. One of the ones I really am curious to what they do. And they have authors that move units, and you could mm-hmm. see one of those authors saying, "You know what? I'm out." I, you know, that that's how this. Both women and men would be yeah. be interesting to see if there are people that say, "You know what? I'll, I'll go with the devil." I don't know in this particular right. one. I don't. I don't know how that would work um, necessarily. But the the fallout, the the new sets of questions to be answered, are fascinating and going to take some time. Um, let's do another sponsor while we're while we're at it. The Black Witch by Laurie. Uh, excuse me. It's <laughs> the Black Witch. I've got, I I I messed. I think I almost messed up the, the character. <laughs> Ellerin Gardner is a young mage and granddaughter of the last Black Witch, of the title. I presume they're the same Black Witch. It would be weird if they were different, I guess. the the last Black Witch, Ellerin has grown up sequestered in this countryside with little exposure to the world outside her small community. When she, who has appeared to have given no powers on her own, goes off to a prestigious university, she comes into contact with new species, races, cultures for the very first time. In this imaginative and intoxicating university setting, Ellerin begins to question the strict beliefs and prejudice of the world she was raised in, eventually forcing her to confront some harsh truths about herself and her own people. A cast of real, complex, and genuine, captivating characters must learn to coexist and cooperate if they are to survive the rising tide of chaos on corruption. It's a fast-moving and powerful story about challenging beliefs, confronting prejudice, and battling oppression. That's The Black Witch by Laurie Forrest. Available now wherever books... And audiobooks are sold. And I'm going to use that as transition. There we books go. Books and audiobooks. So we got a spate of both publishing news and hand-wringing about the world of publishing this week. A- in other words, it was a week in the world it of publishing. It was books, a week
1: never. in publishing. It was
0: a week in publishing. I guess, um, so let's start here, as, I guess as a bridge. Um, you pulled this out. I-, I saw the revenue numbers and I was snarkily tweeting about it this week. Some of you may have seen me do this. Um, the headline in Publishers Weekly says, "Thanks to downloadable audio, publishers see small revenue game in 2017. Um, t- trade sales rose to 1.5. Rose, excuse me, not to 1.4. Trade sales rose 1.5 percent in 2017. This is American publishers to 7.1 billion dollars. Um, and there was some tweeting by the certain editors of certain giant um, literary publications." You know sort of crowing about you know, look, people are still reading, and I had to say, well, GDP growth last year was two point three percent, so it actually is under <laughs> like i don't I don't want to be a wet blanket, but like I want to be the appropriately moist blanket for these the sorts Department of situations of
1: pedantic correction well, it's
0: not pedantic, but it's true, I guess that's what a- pe- that's what I, that's what a pedantic <laughs> person would say um so yeah. <laughs> It's not, it's not a disaster, but you're underperforming a booming economy. Let's calm right. down about what's going on here. But let's see, downloadable audio sales jumped 29.5%.
1: So much.
0: Which accounted for 6.8% of revenue in the adult trade category, where the vast majority of the sales take place. E-book sales from reporting publishers, on the other hand, fell to $1.1 billion, um, uh, let's see, it fell to 1.1%. Yes, a 4.7% decline from 2016. So it represents one, let's see, one divided by seven was about 14%. So about 14% mm-hmm. of uh, total revenue for publishers is ebooks. Um, and it's still triple downloadable audio, which is interesting because there's so much momentum talk about audiobooks, but ebook sales are still triple audiobook sales, slower decline. In the last few years. Uh, anything else from the annual stats that jumped out to you?
1: You know, uh, this just delights the part of me that knows that there are like snobs on the internet who are like, well, at least people are reading, yeah. but who would still say that audiobooks are cheating. Which, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you right. know what? you're, The books are only doing okay because audiobooks are a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And well, and ebooks are a thing delightful. too. Like, who yeah, knows no, how I much think, of those are replacement yeah. sales as well? But
1: there's, uh, yeah, there's like that, you know, particular like snob holdout of like, well, if you're listening, mm-hmm. you're not reading, and seeing the boom in audiobook sales and how that has led to just increased acknowledgement that audiobooks are reading you're putting the same information or the same story into your brain like this is pleasing to me the mainstreaming of audiobooks yeah. um but just happy to see it it's interesting to note that publishing would have been presumably down last year without audiobooks
0: Yeah, uh, as you said, against
1: a strong economy
0: so yeah i guess it's only it still only represents like less than 5% of total sales downloadable audio um But it's there and growing. I mean, this is one of those situations. Like, I think the growth curve is going to be slower than ebook sales. Like, ebooks really, you know, had a sharp uh, hockey stick move over a couple of years, especially after the Kindle came out. And audio has slowly, methodically. Well, twenty nine percent isn't that slow, but audiobook. I think we had or uh, ebooks. We had like years of fifty percent annual growth. I, you know, I don't have it here. I thought I would mention. It just occurs to me. I saw. um, Let's see. I guess it was Digit Day. Or pointer. One of the one of the publications is about the advertising industry writ large. Was saying that podcast listens are also up, and we've you know we we talked about this a few years ago. That at one point like only fourteen percent of people listened to an audiobook in the past month, and the number jumped out to me because that number now is about twenty six percent, and forty percent of Americans have ever listened to a podcast, which is up from like twenty two percent over a few years ago. So again, you're not seeing like the big multiple numbers, but slow, steady growth. And I don't know why audiobooks and podcasts should have a slower and steadier growth than ebooks books did, um, but I find that that growth curve mm-hmm. I- interesting.
1: It is really interesting.
0: Um, and I guess the hand-wringing that we saw, there were two big opinion pieces about Barnes & Noble this week in mainstream presses. One, there was a big one in the New York Times, and then another one in TechCrunch um, that were using the, I don't know, shakiness might mm-hmm. be too strong. Um, the 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 pall that has fallen over Barnes and Noble even more than normal. Uh, the New York Times saying basically Barnes and Noble must be saved. The TechCrunch piece saying. Books are dying. It really wasn't even about Barnes and Noble necessarily. Um, it was just about books are dying. So, but there's a lot of talk about Barnes and Noble this week. Did you read both those pieces? I did. Yeah. Did you? Did anything jump out to you? I have thoughts, but I thought I'd, let, I'd have you. Uh,
1: yeah. The tech. The Tech Crunch one really gave me a good eye roll. <laughs> Mm. um that because it's the argument there is basically like why are we even worried about barnes and noble because in another 10 years we might not even have the written word because we'll be living in a post-text you know world. we're gonna live
0: on the holodeck on the star trek and star the uss enterprise it feels
1: yeah. like the cast of silicon valley got high and wrote yeah. this op-ed like uh, gavin belson talking about the death of text that like Yes, you know, we're moving into or we are in technology is doing things is changing the way that we interact with the word and communicate with each other. But the it's a little, it's just a little far like, Mm -hmm. you know, I agree with this writer in TechCrunch, maybe we can't save Barnes and Noble, maybe we should let it collapse. Um, Maybe that will happen. But i don 't think that the like shoulder shrug of like but it doesn 't really matter because <laughs> because words aren 't going to be a thing anymore
0: yeah well, i mean i 'm being snarky about you know the publishing industry underperforming the broader economy, but it 's also not falling off a cliff like I, both of those things can be true that like yay books, everything is fine, and it 's like flying colors, right. and the other side of that is well it's it 's still up right it's not it 's not some i mean there are there are industries mm-hmm. that are failing right the, you know Right, And this is one that over time, like, look, radio, people said books were gonna, weren't going to survive radio. They weren't going to survive movies. They weren't going to survive the internet. They weren't going to survive Walkman. They weren't <laughs> going to survive iPhones. <laughs> you know, like, books have taken some punches. And they while they are not the cultural force they once were, they are still a huge part of culture. So let's settle down, TechCrunch. Settle down. That that's my yeah, note the, for tech crunch right
1: yeah the sky is not falling um, yeah the note that I made about both of these, especially the, the uh, New York Times opinion piece in our podcast agenda is like, you know things are not great for your business when the place you are is that like people are having no. to write op-eds about why your business should be safe. Like you've,
0: <laughs> that, that, that you've, That's right.
1: You've done a poor enough job either keeping yourself afloat or coming up with new ideas and we've talked about, it feels like hundreds, I'm sure it's just maybe rounding a dozen at this point, but it, we've talked about so many plans that Barnes & Noble has mm. come up with. Like the next zany thing, Barnes Barnes and Noble is going to do to try to stay afloat and that they hardly ever make sense to us. And then they come out and they don't make sense and people don't like them like these Barnes and Noble restaurants and that they're not making any more of those. Like that's the latest one. But you know, you're in a bad spot when you have Mm -hmm. tried and failed enough things that like the, the next gasp to save the business is, you know, a guy named Dave in the New York Times.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, and again, he he even notes it. This guy's name is um, uh, David Leonard, I guess, um, is how you would say it. And he does mention that at one point it was, you know, the same story was around You've Got Mail, which is 1998. Mm -hmm. A nice round 20 years ago. And I had some idea to write a post, and I don't really undo it, but maybe it'll just come out in word vomit right now, of like, the same arguments were being made around independent bookstores in 1998, you know, sort of crystallized by You've Got Mail, where Greg Kinnear writes an op-ed in the New York mm-hmm. Observer saying, save the shop around the corner. And the, this, the symmetry is just too interesting to ignore. Like, what is is there anything really different here, or is there not something different here? And Leonard's claim is that this is different because... Well, he says since the 1970s, like, the U.S. government hasn't been interested as interested in worrying about monopolies, especially because of this economic theory that bigness could even be good, this is a direct quote, because promoted efficiency and thus lower prices, right? Robert Bork, you know, uh, took it to the—was in the Reagan administration and has been sort of picked up by administration since saying, you know, monopolies at lower prices— aren't bad because what we're worried about with monopolies is pricing power and like gouging, right? Well, if someone like Amazon is a monopoly, but prices are cheap, then what's the big deal? Um, Which is kind of a separate conversation. And there could be some, I'm not an expert enough in economic theory, or how the things are working. But the thing that struck me about this piece is the last quote is given to none other than our friend, Oren Tyker,
1: who mm. was kind
0: enough to be interviewed for our annotated episode on the survival of independent bookstores. But Oren Tyker is saying it's in the interest of the book business. He's the spokesperson for the ABA, I'm sorry, which is the American Booksellers Association, which is the trade body of indie bookstores mm-hmm. in the U.S. So he's the spokesperson for indie bookstores saying it's in the interest of the book business for Barnes & Noble not just to survive but thrive. I mean, that is if I, if I am Barnes mm-hmm. & and Noble and I'm seeing Orrin sticking up for me, I am like, what is happening? Like, right? Wait. What is going
1: on? What have we done?
0: Yeah, what have we done? And I don't know. Like, do you? Here's my question for you: Do you think it's fair? And I am honestly asking this this is not a rhetorical question. To say this is exactly the crying wolf that the book industry did about Barnes and Noble twenty years ago. Is it fair to say you whined about it twenty years ago? We still have books. Sim it down now, as we would have said, you know, ten years ago.
1: It, it, you know, it smells the same. Mm. Like there are some. There are some differences, I think, notably between Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but it does smell like the same kind of outcry in the same way that um, when we both read Merchants of Culture about right. the history of publishing, yes. we were talking about, you know, there was originally an outcry about the invention of the paperback book. <laughs> right. and, and then we all. You know, we all survived that. And then ebooks were going to be the thing that ruined it. And we all survived that. And I think every industry has its version of this. You know, I don't know if musicians were worried that CDs were going to take down the industry because we were so used to cassettes. But we definitely had it about MP3s and digital music sales. And so I think simmer, like, I guess – Jeff, Jeff, this is like a you and me personality thing yeah. too, but like, but we're both kind of tuned to the frequency of everybody just simmer down, like very rarely is the sky yeah. actually falling? Um, I guess until it I, does, I,
0: right? Like you know, I, that's right. the other part of me that's wondering, like it's only, there's not a Black Swan event until there is a Black Swan event, like Nassim Taleb would right. say. It's like, everything is fine until it's not. And I guess what you would need to argue, and, and maybe it's true, is that Amazon is sufficiently different from Barnes and Noble, that the threat Amazon represents, I guess, to reading culture writ large
1: yeah, is I different. Think, well, and so the, and that's an interesting distinction because I think with, when you're talking about like the op eds that were being written about Barnes and Noble relative to the indie bookstore, it wasn't like Barnes and Noble is going to kill books this is bad for publishing and b- book culture right. it was like this is bad for these indie bookstores that we love mm-hmm. um but the way that amazon's economics work like that's the notion is that amazon is bad for the industry um right not for a- and and as a knock-on effect i suppose bad for reading culture um, and bad for books period that like they will take out businesses that people love but the primary argument about save things from barnes and noble was that was that barnes and noble was taking out shops that people loved and like that was kind of it
0: right yeah and and just to reframe the question i guess is i've done this before on the show and other contexts on the site like is what's bad for the quote-unquote book business bad for readers it sounds it feels like they should be synonymous but i don't think they are necessarily like i don't know I mean, we've said this before. I, I remember someone wrote a piece on our site like a couple years ago saying this is a golden age for readers. And it was looking at holistically at audiobooks, library lending,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: what you get on Overdrive, what you can get with ebooks, audiobooks. You can get any book you want sent to your house within a few days for pretty few dollars. Um, who's the victim, I guess? And this piece doesn't – it kind of tiptoes around it, but one of the, one of the victims – and I don't mean this ironically – is, you know, are there authors that aren't making as much money as they could, which is bad on its own accord, but also means we aren't getting books we might get otherwise. Is Amazon bad for people who work on Amazon, right? I mean, there's that, like warehouse workers, right. there's, that's, an, mm-hmm. that's an often thing, like, look how, you know, some people point at Amazon, look how you treat your own people. Um, hold down wages, like, there's, that's the other side of a monopoly, right? It might not be consumer-facing, but you can do bad things to your workers, maybe, Um, if there's no competition for those wages or bodies or whatever, they don't pay taxes because they have a virtual, um, you know, they have a monopoly. There's so, at some point, I don't know if a monopoly really matters. If you're just so big where, you know, this thing about Amazon's second corporate headquarters and sort of holding these cities hostage for tax things, like I don't like that. So I'm not not saying that Amazon's all great and glorious. I'm just, when we're talking about why we should save Barnes & Noble, is it really just as a check on Amazon? Which, I, which is, I think, what I came to with this piece is like, there's very little here that's talking about the virtues of Barnes & Noble, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, okay, there's just a lot of stores. But it's not like Barnes & Noble is great. It's just not Amazon, which I think is a way different framing than the independent bookstore, you know, yes. kind of narrative.
1: Right, and I think, honestly, that that's why you have Tycher, someone from yes. the ABA, making a statement and getting involved in this at all. It's not that he likes Barnes & Noble. It's the fear of what... A, a book economy without Barnes & Noble in it, what th- right. that does for really Amazon's primacy. And is that a word primacy that felt sure. like coming out I of think my so, mouth? Yeah. Sure, let's go with it. <laughs>
0: yeah, primacy is a word. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, so for Amazon like really being number one, and then what that will do to independent bookstores and to Amazon, like truly having a monopoly in the business. I think that if um if Barnes and Noble's existence didn't Prop up independent bookstores against Amazon. The ABA wouldn't care. Yeah. Um, but this is about what happens to the book, like to the economy of books without mm-hmm. without something other without like a middle without a middle player. It's like in the Goldilocks story of publishing. There's the like, Amazon is giant, and then the indie bookstores are little, and Barnes and Noble is sort of like that middle size. Right. That um, that you need that buffer. I think. So
0: I'm just. Do you think if Barnes and Noble went away tomorrow, would book buying in America be that different? Like, mm. is it really that big? Is it really a bulwark? I mean, Amazon's already by some reports sixty percent of print book sales in America, ninety percent of ebook sales. I can only imagine more of audiobook sales. God for, I mean, that's another mm-hmm. hidden, you know, uh, stat I'd like to see. Is like what percentage of downloadable or yeah, purchased audiobooks are Audible? Yeah,
1: you know, my like gut response is like, yes, it would be different without Barnes and Noble, but that's the gut, that gut response is based on like my personal experiences yeah. with book buying and a lot of anecdata about where the people I know buy their books or the people in the, like people who talk to us about where they buy their books, that they diversify, that they don't just order from Amazon all the time. Or some of them, you know, read on a nook and buy from Barnes and Noble because they don't want to support Amazon. But I would like to, I would like to see, you know, there was a point where we thought that the, that borders going away right. was going to have been a huge shift. And I don't, think we actually saw that have those kinds of consequences, but Barnes and Noble seems to be like the last one. Um, It's like the last thing standing between Mm. Amazon and sort of total domination. Uh, And that I understand why that is scary for sure.
0: Yeah. I guess I just feel like maybe total domination is already here. Right. Like Mm. that. I mean, it almost seems like a notional protection of Amazon taking over. They grow market share every year. They have more and more pricing power almost that like Barnes and Noble still existing is, you know, uh, it's a palliative to something that's, to to death that's already occurred, that that that's already gone. And I think it's an interesting question for a lot of reasons of like, is this really something to be feared in this way? It's, 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 it's almost, it's a slippery slope argument, right? Because people say if Amazon's a monopoly, then there's all these bad things they can do. Well, will they do them? And if they do them, what will happen? And I've come to this before. I'm not... It might be a cop-out, but I'm not that worried about Amazon until one of the big five stops selling books on Amazon. That's when Mm -hmm. I would be worried myself. And I don't know if that's a too late situation or not. But you know what? PRH does, what, 55% of trade book sales in Mm -hmm. North America? And ain't nobody... I mean, maybe people within publishing, but ain't nobody out here writing New York Times pieces about saving HMH. Right. Like, I don't know. I'm there's some disconnect i have and i am totally willing to think i'm in the wrong here that i've got this backwards but there's some piece of me that's worried about a future that could come and without sort of saying where are we right now and it would be that different than we are right now and if books are if books can if books can survive the internet can't they survive amazon i don't know like th- that part that piece to me seems very interesting um but that, that's where i am right now
1: mhm I think where we have to go now is to our last sponsor, our last sponsor, yeah, and then the hero of the week, and yes! we wrap this business up. Well, there's finally a hero of the week. Jeff. I know.
0: Leave. It, I'm so the, happy. The, the children shall lead us. Right. That's where. We're go All
1: with right. This year. Our last sponsor this week is Chemistry Lessons by Meredith Goldstein. For 17-year-old Maya, the equation for happiness is simple: a dream internship at MIT, and two new science nerd friends, and a perfect boyfriend equal one amazing summer. Then wit dumps her out of the blue. From Boston Globe columnist Meredith Goldstein. This is a dazzling romantic and emotionally resident YA debut about a teen science whiz in Cambridge, Massachusetts who tries to crack the chemical equation for lasting love and instead wreaks havoc on herself and the boys in her life. Talk about a YA heroine for today's readers. Maya's modern, nerdy point of view will appeal to readers who love to get inside the heads and hearts of quirky protagonists as well as teachers, parents, and librarians who look to pop culture for girl science heroes in the age of STEM and girls who code. And uh, also, you know, girl is looking for a cure for the common breakup. <laughs> 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 I like that. I like that one. That's that's a good pitch. Um, I've met Meredith Goldstein at a few book events, just as a side note, and she was lovely. So I'm personally looking forward to checking this out. But that is Chemistry Lessons by Meredith Goldstein. Find it wherever you find your books. And now let me tell you... You found it.
0: You get to do it.
1: Let me tell you something good. A five-year-old boy named Ulysses Stoutenburg of Spring Garden Township is concerned that York County. Let's see, uh, this is a this is a U.S. story, but I'm not sure where York County is.
0: (laughs) Oh, I should have.
1: I got so excited about all his wonderfulness. I'm. It it, looks like this is in New
0: Hampshire. New Hampshire.
1: Okay. Ulysses Stoutenberg of York County, New Hampshire, is concerned that the government is cutting $300,000 from the county library budget. So on a warm Wednesday last week, he set up a lemonade stand in front of his family's colonial home where York College students stream by on their way to campus. The lemonade was free, but you could make donations and all donations would go to the library system. He squeezed 18 lemons and mixed the drinks himself. And he said that his lemonade is so good it will make your head explode. So Ulysses, because <laughs> he's five.
0: Um, Five-year-olds Ulysses. are kind of magic. I, I have currently have a five-year-old in our house, and they're in this like weird, interesting twilight where they can do and say stuff, but they also have a little pixie dust in their
1: eyes. Mm-hmm. They are, it's, yeah. a magic,
0: it's a magic age. Really. It is a magic time. This is also time. Pennsylvania. I looked it up. So just. Ah, so thank you, you yeah, no for problem.
1: helping me with that. Yeah, no My geographical failures there. Um. So Ulysses made a total of $98.18 in cash to support libraries in the six hours that he was open. And they kept PayPal donations open um, for another couple of days after this happened. So I haven't seen a follow-up about... Oh, the story is from last week. It's from um, mm-hmm. May 3rd. But it just crossed my desk this morning. I haven't seen a follow up about whether there were any additional donations. But my hat is off, and my heart is warmed by Young Ulysses and his care for libraries.
0: Tales Good of job. Brave Ulysses, as, as the song says. <laughs> well done, uh, Mr. Stoutenburg.
1: I mean, when your parents name you Ulysses, you like you have to try to save a bookish establishment. When you, know you mean it's you're going to go on a you?
0: long and ultimately failed quest?
1: Oh no, no, no downer. Like okay, literary. we'll let it, We'll let it's it that a literary out. Literary we'll reference, Jeff. We'll
0: edit we'll that out. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening to this week's show. You can find show notes at bookride.com/slash/listen. I guess Ulysses made it back. Just all the people with him died. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, you can find show notes at bookride.com/slash/listen. Just email podcast at bookride.com. I'd like to know what you think. Read these if if you if you have read or are interested in reading, especially the New York Times opinion piece about Barnes and Noble. I would like to which, hear what you guys think uh out there um only 600 barnes and nobles left i know that sounds like a lot but there are what 1800 independent bookstores like three to one still mm-hmm. um at one point they had more they've been shuttering them over the years we will be back next week to have soon. a good one